Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here from Beate Bognes. Bognes. He's uh, c- calling in all the way uh, from Norway. Am I right? All uh, right. Uh, Beate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Beate is uh, an author. Uh, he's the chairman of Beyond Budgeting, which we'll get into, and the author of the book Implementing Beyond Budgeting, Unlocking the Performance Potential. He's also uh, a senior practitioner within the corporate performance division of Equinor, which, of course, is a large uh, oil company or, um, well, I suppose, energy company, uh, majority owned by Norway, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, Beate, it's a great honor and a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> now, one might immediately ask, why have we got uh, a guest on this show with an interest in budgeting uh, when the podcast is about being human? <laughs> and I promise you uh, that budgeting or the lack of budgeting has everything to do with our humanity in the workplace. Um, but before we get into that, which I'm sure we will do, shall we start with a brief history of why it is we have this soul-crushing process that so many of us experience within the corporate workplace of budgeting? You know, why do so many of us have to endure it? That is a very good question. And um, uh, and there was actually a reason for this um, quite some time ago, uh, because what we talk about here is pretty old management technology uh, invented roughly 100 years ago. And in case you don't know, the inventor was Mr. James O. McKinsey, the founder of McKinsey Consulting. Right? And um, I never met Mr. McKinsey, but actually, I don't think he was an evil man. I think he actually had the best of intentions. Purpose um, was to help organizations perform better. And I actually think it, it worked uh, 100 years ago. Um, and maybe even 50 years ago, but no longer today, because today things have changed. Today, this way of not just managing, but this way of thinking, uh, this kind of mindset is doing the opposite of what Mr. McKinsey wanted. It has become more of a barrier than a support for getting out the best possible uh, performance in, 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 um, in organizations. And... Um, Another problem, well, there are many problems with, with, uh, with, um, uh, with, with budgeting, but um, uh, one, one of those problems uh, is related to two fundamental assumptions behind um, uh, maybe not just budgeting, but traditional management in, in, in general, uh, but specifically budgeting. Um, the first one is that uh, people can't be trusted. And the second one is that the future is predictable and planable. And we are challenging both those assumptions heavily in Beyond Budgeting because we don't think that's the case. Um, so this is where it's coming from. And um, um, you're right. Um, the big majority of companies out there are still doing this stuff, despite the fact that so many are unhappy with it. Fortunately, things are changing. Um, there is a, we are extremely busy these days because the interest in beyond budgeting has really exploded. Of course, COVID has, uh, has COVID-19 and the pandemic has helped. Um, at the same time, we have been through 
big uh, crisis before. I mean, we had a financial uh, crisis uh, some time ago. Um, but I think this one is different because these earlier um, crises, they, they, they only challenged this first assumption uh, in traditional management or the second assumption that, that the future is um, predictable and planable. But it did not change this assumption that you can't trust people. Whereas in COVID, also that assumption has been challenged through all the homework. Right? A lot of companies actually had to trust their people, even if they didn't want to. And it actually worked. Right? So um, if I should look for something positive coming out of this, maybe, yeah, maybe that is something. Right. Um, and so budgets have existed because we believe we can predict the future and we and people can't be trusted. And so therefore, a budget is some way to control them uh, and have them do do what we want. Um, and now we have Enter, Stage Left Beyond Budgeting, which is a book uh, written uh, some time ago now, right? And uh, yeah. what was Beyond Budgeting first written? Uh, the original book came up, uh, came out in nineteen uh, two thousand and three, I think. Yeah, uh, Jeremy Hope and Robin Fraser. Uh, that was the first one, right? And and give us the kind of the uh, the elevator pitch of of beyond budgeting, uh, and then sort of where you first encountered it. Well, I think I just gave it <laughs> the pitch. I mean, I, I think these, these um, um, when I remind people about these two uh, assumptions, I mean, it, it, it gets people uh, to, 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 uh, to think. So um, I think it would be along those lines. Um, my journey, well, this is a long story, but, but my, my journey um, started back in um, 1994. But um, I actually started my um, career earlier, back in 1983, when I joined Statoil, as we were called back, back then. Um, we changed name to Equinor. Um, and in case you don't know, my first job was in the corporate budget department of, of that com- company, where I became the, the manager the year after. So, um, I mean, I have done a lot of stupid things in my life, at least in my Early, early part of my career. Uh, but it also means that I know what I'm talking about. I think it gives me some credibility here because I've been there. I've done that. In uh, 1994, um, Statol at the time uh, established a new petrochemicals company together with Finnish uh, Neste, also an energy company. Um, Borealis uh, was Europe's largest um, petrochemicals company at the time with 30 plants across Europe and headquartered in Copenhagen. And I was asked to head up the finance function in this company. And we started operations March 1, 1994. And it didn't take many days before people came to us and asked, where is the budget for 1994? We can't operate without a budget. And as finance people, we agreed, of course, we need a budget. So we started to make one on top of everything else that you need to do when you're setting up a new company with uh, recruiting people, setting up systems and moving to Copenhagen with your family and, and you name it. And, uh, but we were actually still able to, to make a budget, finish some maybe in June of that year. Um, everybody happy, even if half the year had passed already. 
But it didn't take many days before people started to ask about the 1995 budget. We have to start it. It's already late. It's summer. And again, we agreed, started to make that one. And sometimes in late uh, October, early November, that budget was uh, finished. Um, and the only energy we had left, we uh, used for a day out at the hotel outside of Copenhagen. We gathered the uh, the um, key finance people from across Europe. And the purpose of that day was to improve budgeting in Boyolis. So we spent this day having completely unimportant discussions. Shall we move this column from here to here in order to simplify? Shall we stop asking for this number in, in order to simplify? And towards the end of that day, as we were about to move another column we suddenly heard from a guy down in the corner, uh, normally quite active, but um, um, during this day, he had been very silent. But suddenly we heard from this guy, what if we don't budget at all? The room, became dead. <laughs> the room became dead silent. Everybody turned around, looked at the guy. Nobody said anything, but I think we were all thinking the same. This guy probably needs a and that was it. Unthinkable, right? Um, so nothing. Still, that comment came a kind of defining moment. Because I think it was half a year after, um, into 1995, the company realized that the synergies that we have gotten out of um, establishing this, this company, it wasn't enough. It's a very competitive uh, business. So, um, uh, and, and uh, the, the answer became what was big in the 90s, business process re-engineering. You might remember that. Um, yes. A lot of consultants had earned a lot of money on, on that stuff. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's, it's only common sense. Turn every stone, look, look for a better way. And I was asked to head up something called management effectiveness. I didn't invent that label myself, so I went to the CFO and I asked, what do you mean? And also... What do you expect? And he just smiled and then he said, Bjorte, I expect the unexpected. That was the mandate. I went back to my team and uh, shared this with them. Um, and it didn't take long before that comment from the guy down in the corner came back to us. Of course, we knew that this wasn't the most intelligent process in the world, but kind of to kick it out had something seemed unthinkable up to now. So we thought, well, could this be a chance to do something here? So we went back to the CFO and proposed or told him that we want to kick out the budget. He uh, smiled again, and then uh, he said, well, that sounds interesting, but what shall we then do instead? Well, we had to admit we don't have a clue. Maybe you shall go and find out, was his message to us. And that's what we did. So we started to search for an alternative to traditional budgets. And, you know, this was before uh, it was nothing called beyond budgeting. So it wasn't that easy. And also search in 1995, that wasn't Google. Right? That was uh, calling people, reading, discussing. And that's what we did. Uh, weeks after week after week, uh, we couldn't find anything. Um, and there was a little glimmer of hope because... Um, we came across an article in a Swedish magazine which says that Volvo kicks out the budget. 
we went up to to Gothenburg to their headquarters. And who would have you th- uh, who'd have thought that purveyor of such sensible cars would be the one to? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, they had done some interesting things. But um, uh, we were after something more radical. So um, back to Copenhagen, continue to to um, to search. By the way, today Volvo they have kicked out budgets in a, in a much more radical way. But anyway, um, another glimmer of hope because we came across Jack Welch and what he had said about budgets being the bane of corporate America. And we thought, if that guy can say this, we must be onto something. Um, a little sidestep on this story, because many years later, I was actually invited to, to GE when Jeff Immelt was the, was the CEO, um, uh, because they had come across beyond budgeting and you know, was interested. And they have this, uh, legendary management gathering um, um, in the U.S. once a year, 600 top managers. Um, I did my session, and afterwards, a lot of people came over and said that, you know, what, what Jack said, that was for the outside world. Inside, GE was still a, a budget tyranny. But anyway, um, back to Copenhagen, uh, continue to search. Uh, and I think we were this close to, 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 to giving up. Um, when there was Another defining moment there was a guy on the team suddenly asking, why do we budget? What's the purpose of a budget? And first we thought, what kind of question is that? But it turned out to be a great question that cracked it all, provided us with the solutions and um, enabled us to, to kick out the traditional budget. So from 96, um, we operated without traditional budgets and it worked perfectly. Cost actually came down. Yeah, and that's so, a story um, I've heard over in the book, right? It's totally counterintuitive yeah. that you kick out budgets and example after example and costs go down. Yeah, yeah. Now it's, um, uh, and I think we were actually, I have to be, admit, I mean, we were concerned uh, that, um, that, cost, uh, yeah, that cost will increase somewhat, but actually the opposite happened. So this was 96. Um, 1998, I moved from finance to HR uh, to head up the uh, the HR function in the same company, and I had that role until 2002 when I returned back to Stafford and became corporate controller for our international business. But my hobby at the time that was to pester my colleagues with the stupidity of the budgeting that the company was doing at the time. And um, looking back, I don't think I was very diplomatic, um, but um, uh, slowly, slowly, actually took three years. Um, then we had this common understanding that there are uh, serious problems, there are solutions. So we went to the executive committee and uh, proposed not just to kick out the budget. This has become bigger. It was more about changing how we were leading and, and managing. And uh, we got a yes. And since then, I have been working full time on Beyond Budgeting, um, internally in the company, doing uh, leadership training for the development of the model, and externally um, speaking like this, uh, doing some consulting and uh, and also uh, writing. So um, I have this roughly 50-50 split between what I do internally and what I do externally. Right, right. So that's a long, long story. Right. So, okay, so I just want to place you back in Borealis, right? So you... you, you- you take this big step, you know, to kick out the budgets there, and you see costs down. Like, what what are the uh, some of the other things that start to happen 
like talk us through that and and what so what do you put in its place and what starts mm. to happen as you as you go on that journey now it's um uh, I think the, the reason why 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 cost often go, go down, and we've seen this uh, over and over again. I can give you another example here before I answer your question. Uh, in the public sector in Norway, um, I can't name which one as such, but it's um, they are uh, um, they've been running two pilots uh, with two other units. Um, so in 2020, they took away the cost budgets in both of these units. And they said, you, you, I mean, you, you uh, spend what is needed in order to get your work done. And um, then when the year was over, they looked at the results. And um, uh, actually, cost, because of the pandemic, costs uh, in all these units came down because there was less travel and less external activities. <clears throat> but non-units uh, had higher cost reductions than the two pilots, 50% in both of them. So, um, and, and, and reasons, um, well, first of all, I mean, there are so many reasons, but one reason is that people think about the budget as a very effective ceiling that we put on, 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 uh, on cost, but, and that's true, but it is just effective as a floor in the sense that the budgets tend to be, be spent. And also when, when people propose budgets, when they know that, or cost budgets, when they know this, this is my only shot at getting access to resources for next year. And uh, some people might remember that 20% cut from last year. I mean, of course, you build fat into your your proposals, right? And um, some of it might be taken out, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and of course, nobody wants to uh, to come in underspent and get less money next year, right? Yeah, yes, of course. So, and, and, and again, this everybody knows this game, uh, right? And uh, but you asked about how, how to get started. Well, we are back to that question. In Borealis, what's the purpose of a budget? And um, it comes a little, a little finance session as such, um, because the budget has actually three different purposes. We use budgets to set targets, financial targets, sales targets, production targets. At the same time, this budget is meant to be a kind of forecast of what next year can look like in terms of cash flow, financial capacity. And last but not least, it is a resource allocation mechanism, hand, handing out bags of money to, to people on costs on investments, right? So uh, resource allocation. And it might seem very efficient to solve three purposes in um, one process and through one set of numbers. But that is also the problem, right? I mean, right. Um, let's assume we are moving into a budget process and um, uh, upstairs in, in corporate finance, we want to understand, uh, starting with revenues, we want to understand what next year could look like. And or what, what so we ask people, what's your best number for next year? But everybody knows that the number I'm sending upstairs will come back to me as a target for next year, maybe with a bonus attached. Well, that insight might actually do something to the level of numbers submitted. And moving to the cost uh, and investment side, as we just talked about, I mean, um, when people know that my only shot and then they remember last year's 20% cut, that insight and that memory might also do something with the, with the numbers submitted. And we might smile a bit, uh, I mean, about all of this, but it's actually not funny. Um, first of all, it, it, it destroys the quality of numbers, but even, even more worrisome is the fact that it stimulates this 
behavior that is that is borderline unethical. The lowballing, the gaming, the sandbagging, the resource hoarding, the 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 uh, internal negotiations. That's not the kind of behaviors we would like to see. Yeah, that's a fortunately. Yeah, I just want to pause on that. I think that's such an important point, you know, back to this, you know, this is about being human. It's, you're, you're literally encouraging people to, to behave at the, at the outer edges of their integrity, right? It's almost a system that's encouraging people to sort of edge up as close as they feel comfortable with in terms of, of being honest and, and behaving with integrity. And that's the, yeah, that's, one of the sort of key pillars of the entire organization. So it's, it's such an important point you're making here. Uh, there was actually an, an article written by a um, uh, U.S. professor, uh, Jensen, I think he's called, uh, some years ago, and it was called uh, Budgeting, Encouraging People to Lie. Or something yeah, like there you go. That's a more uh, blunt version mm, of it. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So... Um, so, so it is. Uh, so, I think that uh, that problem is much bigger than the fact that you get distorted numbers. Fortunately, there is a very simple uh, solution here. Um, we should still, or we can still do all of these three things, but we should do them in three separate processes because these are different things. A target is an aspiration; it's what we want to happen. While a forecast is an expectation; it's what we think will happen whether we like what we see or not. And resource allocation is about optimizing scarce resources uh, in order to get to where we want to be. And when we have separated, then not only can this become different numbers, like a target can be more ambitious than a forecast, but even more importantly, this opens up this huge improvement agenda. Because now we can start to have great discussions about how can we set targets that really ignite and inspire and motivate people. Um, how can we set targets that are more, that are more uh, robust against all the volatility, uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity out there? How can we take the politics out of forecasting and the gaming? And how can we design more intelligent ways of managing costs compared to what Mr. McKinsey could offer us 100 years ago? And right. last but not least, how can we run each of these three on rhythms that are more suited to each purpose and also to the business we are in. Because this also enables you to escape the tyranny of the calendar year. You can get a much more event-driven, business-driven rhythm in in, in these uh, processes. Yeah. So so this is a a great way to, to, to get started. And it is also a um, this backdoor into the bigger discussions about uh, beyond budgeting, especially on the people side, right? On this uh, and leadership, because beyond budgeting has six leadership principles, six management process um, principles. And uh, so moving into designing target setting, I mean, again, what really motivates the, 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 the knowledge worker, right? And, 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 uh, you get into the whole kind of motivation and arena and, and uh, incentives, individual goals and so on. And um, on the cost side, if we say that we trust people, do we need detailed travel budgets and so on and so on. So um, I have helped a lot of companies going beyond budgeting, and this is often where we start. It is, it is logical. It is not scary for, for, for a CFO. 
because um, um, if somebody says that in, it's impossible to operate without a budget, my response would be that, well, we are still doing what the budget tried to do for us. But because of the separation, we can de- do each one in, in, in a better way. So how, how scary is that? Yeah, and you're using the, say, the language they understand, forecasting, targets, yes. cost control, right? So it's very familiar. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And language is important here because, um, you know, today a lot of organizations uh, are on huge agile transformation journeys. And I think, and they struggle uh, for different reasons. One re- reason actually has to do with, with, uh, with, with language because uh, at least in the beginning, when, when, when um, the agile community were trying to scale agile, they were using the same language and, and, and framework that, that was so successful in revolutionizing software development. But if you apply that, um, that language to a group of executives, uh, and, and that doesn't always work, right? Well, I mean, that's a scrap if you master. Say, yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you haven't heard, the, if you don't play rugby, you might think it's a skin disease, right? Or, or that the sprint is, a, a sprint is about running faster. Or that continuous delivery is about kind of um, more, more sweat and more efficient assembly lines uh, and so on and so on. So beyond purchasing offers a language that these guys understand. Uh, they might still disagree, but at least they understand what they're talking about. The other thing is that all these organizations um, discover often late on the journey that there is a missing piece. There's actually an elephant in the room that nobody's addressing, and that is that is budgeting, not just the process, but also the mindset. And it's impossible to achieve with an agile transformation unless you also address that part of the process. Um, so, so we are either the missing piece in such a transformation, or we can be um, that transformation in itself, because beyond budgeting is actually about business agility. Right? Yeah. So, so that is a more kind of suitable title, maybe. Um, that wasn't invented when we hit the ground running uh, back in 1998. Right, right. right. Yeah. Um, so take me back to Borealis. So, so I'm just trying to imagine the scene, right? So you, you've, mm. you've come up with this idea. You've, you've separated <laughs> out these three activities mm. used to be, you know, that used to be all conflated <laughs> under, under one mm. banner, under budgeting. How do people react? Like, yeah, just mm. how does that go initially? Oh, well, first of all, I mean, when, when, when people heard about the, the um, proposal, uh, the response was very positive because, I mean, you know, this is a process that most managers hate. That and performance appraisals, I think, are the two most hated processes in any organization. So, so, um, uh, so if you have the courage to do something with at least one of them, then, then that is basically good news for any change journey. Um, but it was, of course, there was a lot of questions and, um, I think we were quite good in telling people that this is not necessarily easier from a leadership point of view. This actually takes more leadership, right? Um, because things will become more fluid and, and it will, I mean, there are managers who like budgets because they don't like to make decisions. And it, the more detailed your budget is, the more decisions have been made for you. And you even have someone to blame if some of those decisions are unpopular. Right? And we had some in that category uh, as well, but I think most liked it. And 
after they had been trying this for a year or two, I mean, they, they, they worked it out. But of course, there was a lot of, lot of questions. Um, and we saw the same in, in, uh, in, in Equinor in 2005 when, when we got started. That uh, um, this really, it, it kind of sorts out the, the good leaders from the, the less good, to put it that way. It becomes more, more visible, absolutely. Okay. A, a, a nice little, a nice little side effect, which I often remind finance people about, is that it gave the finance function quite a boost from an image point of view, because the the initial reaction, of course, people lied. They, they thought it was exciting, kick out the budget, but they also some said that there has to be a hidden agenda. Why would finance voluntarily kick out their power mechanism or Give process number weapons. one? Yeah, yes, there must be a hidden agenda. When they realized that there was no hidden agenda, I think it gave us a very nice uh, boost from an image point. That was, of course, not the reason for doing it, but, uh, but still, still nice. So, um, but it also changed the role of the, the, the finance community. And we've seen the same in Ecuador. Um, much more interesting uh, role, uh, much more forward-looking, much more uh, business-oriented, much more continuous. Uh, better collaboration with other functions, including HR, and 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 so on and so on. So it changed. It has to. It changed the role of managers. It changed the role of, of finance to the better, much better. Right, right. And you mentioned that um, in terms of leadership, like it exposes the poor leadership. In what way was it exposing exposing poor leadership? Well, again, you heard. <laughs> You, you, of course, we had our suspicions already of who, who would be in which category, but but uh, you heard it in, in the kind of um, um, Uber longing back to the to the old days, and you heard it about the how they talked about this and and, and uh, questions they had for us and and so on. But um, uh, fortunately, I mean, this was uh, a small small minority, and um, I don't think I don't think well at least in Ecuador we don't have any discussions about going back. We have a lot of discussions about how to make this work even better. Um, also, because this is a, you know, this is a journey. This is not a project. It is a journey where you get braver along the way, and it's also a journey where the the direction is clearer than the destination. To the extent there is a destination, um, and that's also what I find fasc- fascinating. Because some people ask, I mean. You've been doing, or Equinor has been doing this to, since 2005. When are you finished? And I don't think you ever get finished. One example. We spent many years after the separation, uh, and no one talking Equinor, uh, setting better financial targets. Uh, for instance, using a, a beyond budgeting recommendation about uh, setting relative targets. So you establish a peer group. And uh, you set the target about being above average or first quarter, I would whatever. And uh, so that we've done. Um, but now we've just cracked open a discussion about do we need all these targets? Uh, can we do with less? And we actually have opened up for uh, the fact that you can have indicators, as we call them. In, instead, we, we try to call them indicators instead of KPIs. Okay, I can come back to that afterwards. But you can have indicators where you measure something, but you don't have a target. And the reason for that is that target setting can actually have some of the same problems that budgeting uh, had. Not all of them, but some of them. 
and um, partly around um, how they are set, imposed on people, and uh, which they shouldn't be. Uh, but also the, the the notion of a target itself should should be challenged because you know when when we set an annual target, we are sitting in the autumn the year before, and we are trying to describe what does good performance look like twelve months down the road. If there's a lot of uncertainty, how on earth do we know what that looks like? What kind of number is it? It is. So is, is that 30, 27, right? But we have to conclude, and then we land on 29.2, and that becomes the answer, right? That everything shall be just against. But uh, <laughs> one of the purposes of, of target setting is performance evaluation. Right, you have to have something to evaluate in. But at which point in time is it easiest to have a view on what is good performance? Is that upfront in the autumn with all that fog, or is it afterwards when all the uncertainty is gone and the fog has cleared? And you know what happened: tailwind and headwind and and changes in assumptions and uh, yeah. So so uh, I think that kind of um, shows that you you. You don't need targets in order to evaluate performance. And people say, well, you need targets in order to set direction and to motivate. Well, there are many ways of setting direction and motivating. You can, you can use uh, words, or if you use numbers, you can say, I mean, two wars or in the range or uh, always better uh, or improving all the time, right? But we have this counting mentality that it has to be precise, right? The smart principles goals, specific and measurable and, and so on. I mean, I think SMART has done a lot of damage when it comes to target setting in companies. Yeah. Well, maybe that's your next book, Beate, Beyond Targeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no, I think that makes a lot of sense. We had another uh, guest on the show. He's got a from the Happiness Company, but he's written a book, written a book called The Happiness Manifesto, and he just the way that he is that manages, the, is it uh, Henry, Henry Stewart, Stewart or Henry Stewart? Oh, and, uh, I know yeah. him, great, great guy. Yeah, and uh, great guy. Yeah, the way he talks, you know, if he if he sees a problem in his his company, one of the ways he manages it, he just encourages people to be transparent about a particular metric, and that's it. Yeah. And he trusts <laughs> them to adjust their behavior over time to improving their performance against that particular metric. So it's, it's and I think you yeah. mentioned it in the book, right? It's management by measurement, not management by objectives. Yeah. Management by measurement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned transparency, which is also a very important beyond budgeting principle, um, which is uh, important from, from uh, in, in many aspects. But uh, one of them is actually also cost control, as we talk, because um, uh, transparency is, uh, it is a kind of a social control mechanism. Right? Um, and I write about in my book about a company called MICE, Norwegian IT company. They have no budgets, no targets. Um, employees can buy whatever PC they want, as expensive as they want, and replace it as often as they want. They can attend whatever course, seminar, conference, as often as they want, wherever in the world. No travel budgets, no training budgets. But it is not an anarchy. Because when you have bought that PC, when you have returned uh, from that conference, you have to post on the internet what you did and the cost of it. So transparency is their main control, uh, cost control mechanism, and they are very happy with it. 
They do have one small concern, however. And do you know what that is? No, go on. <laughs> Some people might think that, well, this is this is kind of too too sloppy and, and um, I mean, yeah, not not, not strong enough compared to the good old budget. But it's actually the other way around. The small concern is, could it be too effective? Right. Um, but what do you mean? Problem, what, 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 what do you mean by too effective? How could you, how could you? But, well, are are, buy, are people buying good enough feces? Okay. Are they taking enough training? Right. So, um, and this is, you know, transparency is a very powerful mechanism. So it has to be applied with wisdom, because if it becomes naming and shaming, it doesn't work. Right. And we should also always position transparency more from a learning perspective than from a control perspective. So how can we learn from each other if everything is secret? And then you get this uh, subject control mechanism as, as a side effect, but you have to, you, know, you have to apply it with, with caution. Which is where you can see how targets can be a problem because it, it, it's perhaps more difficult to have a learning environment where, where you've got a large degree of targeting because People might feel shame about not reaching their targets. They don't want to open up about where they're not reaching their targets, and so they're not open for learning or feedback. So I, I can see how the yeah. two might conflict yeah. with each other: a learning goal and yeah. having targets. Yeah. And of course, I mean, the more the more targets there are, the more individual these targets are. I mean, that's also an, an issue because people become obsessed on on, on hitting uh, your own uh, numbers, right? And and Collaboration and uh, and everything uh, else kind of walks out the the the, the door. Um, and often this is kind of turbocharged with having individual bonuses, which is um, another elephant in the room. Uh, it's um, yeah. well, maybe we have arrived at that topic, uh, but um, uh, I, I can't think of uh, any area where there's a bigger gap between what most research is telling us and what most businesses are like. It, it's fascinating. And, uh, well, you know the research, and, and I'm sure yeah. and, and, and you, you've seen uh, Dan Pink's video and all this stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I almost feel like uh, we talked about good leaders. I, 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 I would call individual bonus, it's almost managerial laziness, right? It is much easier to dangle a bag of money in front of people's nose and say, do this and get that, and to motivate them through mastery, autonomy, purpose, and, and belonging, and so on. Yeah, that's the really powerful to question to ask. It's not like, do targets improve individual performance for complex work? Because we, we know the answer to that is no. It's why do, we, why do people still choose to target, <laughs> even when yeah. the research yeah. exists? That's the more yeah. interesting yeah. example. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that sounds like a good... And, and yeah. the illusion of, and, and the, the other thing you mentioned in your, your book is the illusion of control. Right? For mm. many people, they want to feel that their, their environment is controlled. And by targeting people, they feel that somehow they've got more control on that individual yeah. and they'll do the mm. things that they want them to do, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, even if people hit their targets, I mean, that says really nothing. It, it just tells that, well, you hit, you hit that number. But it doesn't really say anything about what was that good performance. Could you have could you have performed even better because there was uh, there was uh, tailwind or was there a lot of headwind that that um, or did other things change? So it's um, again it is this our urge for simplifying the world, right? We don't like what's complex and we are trying to simplify. And instead of accepting that things are complex and and and, and, and acting accordingly, right, right. 
No, that um, that makes sense. One quote I just wanted to bring up, which is a book, because I love it, and I just want to sort of wheel it out, um, comes from the okay. Handel's Bank and uh, book, mm. um, which which talks about this, you know, right from the start of the end interview, right? This, this importance of trusting people. We have an unshakable belief in people and their will and ability to do good things well, right? But this is one of the best performing banks in the world. One of the pioneers of kicking out budgets. They have that right up front in their book. We have an unshakable belief in people and their will and ability to good, to do things well. So that, that, that unshakable belief, now, if, if you have a few bad apples, we're still going to believe in people. Um, and we believe in their will. So we don't feel like we have got to target them and, you know, put a fire under their ass to get them. We, we just believe that they're going to do it. Um, and we believe in their ability to do good things. So we believe that they're good people, right? We, we trust that people are good and that they'll do things well, right? That, that just sort of captures so much of what we're talking about, I think. No, it's, it's, it's wonderful words, and they sound even better in Swedish. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> Come know, on, give it. Do you know them in Swedish? Can you say it in Swedish? Uh, no, I think that's not my 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 language. So I think <laughs> my <laughs> Swedish friends will will uh, laugh. Um, but, but you know, it's it's still it's wonderful words. But it's it's not that difficult to write nice words in a book. I think the real important thing here is that Handelsbank and they've been able to activate these words into their management processes. Right, because there is a coherence, consistency between what they preach and say in this book and what they practice in their management model. Like no budgets, no targets, no individual bonus. Right, it all hangs together, which is again a very important thing in beyond budgeting. This coherence between the six leadership principles and the six management um, processes that we recommend um, and. In so many organizations, you see a lack of such a coherence. Two classical examples. I mean, it doesn't matter that we, that we from the leadership, on the leadership side, talk loud and warm about you know, we and us and together and team and collaboration, everybody in the same uh, boat. But if you move to management processes, uh, rewards, it's all about individual bonus. That is not criticizing individual bonus. It's criticizing the, the lack of consistency in, in, in messages. Or the other um, classical example that, um, and I think I touched upon it earlier, that it doesn't help that we, 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 we talk about how fantastic people we have on board and we would be nothing without you and we trust you so much. But not that much. Of course, we need detailed travel budgets. Are you crazy? Right? I mean, it is, this is something that people out there, they notice, right? And the words become hollow because the management processes have the very different message. Yeah. And the reason for this, unfortunately, has actually something to do with finance and HR, which are not always the best of friends in organizations. They tend to talk a lot about each other, um, uh, not much with each other. And it's not nice what is said on either side. I know because I've been both places. Um, and what happens is that, again, it's very often HR that this kind of preaching and promoting uh, values and leadership and, and, and good intended people messages, then finance is pushing their own management processes that has exactly the opposite message. And guess which one is winning? Right. That was a leading question. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, of course. Well, you know, finance always wins, right? I mean, that, that's the, you know, and that's why they're so feared in organizations, right? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
No, that's uh, yeah. But you, the the point you're making about how, how common it is with in organisations for the the values on the elevator, the the values on the wall that are actually what plays out. I mean, one organisation I know, you know I know well has has a has a strong value on trust, and yet I know uh, that even senior managers there can't buy a book without permission. <laughs> One reflection on on trust, by the way. Um, I used to travel quite a lot before uh, the pandemic, uh, and that meant uh, quite a number of hotel nights. And the first thing I always check when I'm entering the room is what kind of clothing hangers do they have? Because, you know, there are two types. There's a normal one with, with, with the hook, and you have the one without the hook. Just um, it's hanging. You have to kind of push it through this little hole and, and very cumbersome. So how come hotels uh, offer the guests, or at least some hotels offer the guests uh, these awful uh, clothing hangers? Well, the reason is probably that uh, maybe there was a few guests at one point in time that stole a few of those ordinary uh, hangers with a hook. And the response to put everybody in jail because somebody did something wrong, right? Which is also a problem in traditional management um, when it comes to trust. Because if you show trust in an organization, the only thing you know for sure is that someone will most likely abuse that trust at some point in time. And when it happens, what is the easy response for a CEO or a CFO? Well, that is to say that, look what happened uh, here and here. This trust thing doesn't work back to the old way. That's yeah. the easier thing to do. And often the right that, thing to, that's often to appease the anger of those who are directly affected, right? Sometimes the easiest thing is say, yes, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it. We'll put a new one. Yeah, yeah. You, you're, kind of, you're showing action, right? If you have to do something, but you should do something, but you should do something else. You should take that firm talk with those involved and let it have the necessary consequences if needed but you shouldn't punish everybody because somebody did something wrong but that takes a bit more leadership you actually have to talk to people right um in the other option you can just uh, send out that mail and then case closed yeah we've dealt so, with it. Um, we've got yeah. yes yeah. rather than confront those who've betrayed the trust and <clears throat> and and yeah. and dish out the consequences right and, and yeah. have them uh, feel some consequence yeah that takes yeah. more leadership i can connect yeah. You see that, mm. yeah, um, right. And I, I think it, it not just at the top, but it, it, I think I remember speaking. So we had the guy who was head of corporate communications, um, Richard Winder, on here um, from Handelsbanken. Yeah, yeah, right. And, yeah. He, and he said that uh, one of the things that he found when going, I think he came from a from a PR firm or a sort of some sort of comms firm, mm. and then went become internal comms for Handelsbanken. The the, the the first thing he noticed was just how little direction he had, right? He's just, he's, he's like, feels quite exposed. He's like, well, where do I go? Yeah. What, like, what do I do? And so I think there's a, there's the onus of, of leadership on people at the top of the CEO and so on, but it also every, you know, everywhere, right? Because you've, you've got to self lead. You've got to work out for yourself. Where am I going to make an impact? Where am I going to contribute? You know, who, am I, who, who am I going to associate with? Where am I going to place my bets? Right, all of those questions that anybody, as a leader at whatever leader at whatever level, needs to ask themselves. Um, you know, that that's that's true of of anybody in this type of culture, right? 
Uh, well, again, Handelsbanken is a, it is a great uh, great case, uh, and also because they have been running like this for so long, right? Since all the way since 1970, um, and uh, it means that we have a nice long period to look back at to check if this stuff kind of works from a performance point of view. And as you know, the performance of that bank is simply simply amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have been performing better than the average of, of uh, their competitors every year since 1972. Um, they are among the most cost-effective um, um, universal banks in Europe, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they have never needed any bailout from the authorities because they messed it up. Um, and I've seen some some performance data from from the UK, um, not just on on financials, but also on uh, customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction, and it was impressive. You had this comparison with other banks. And you had Handelsbanken way up here, and all the other banks bundled way down on, on that on that graph. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so it's it's a big mystery for me that not more banks are copying this way of or trying to to to, to do something uh, similar. Um, and um, I was actually speculating about that because I have, uh, as you know, um, in my in my uh, in my book, in the Handelsbanken case, um, I was speculating uh, about why not more banks uh, are, are are trying to do the same. And before uh, I finished the, the manuscript, I sent a letter to the um, to, to the guy who was the CEO at the time when this was introduced, um, Jan Balander, and um, I um, uh, well, I sent him a mail, and I got a letter back, handwritten letter. And he said that, uh, yes, you, you got you got this right, and, and I like it, but I have one comment. And that was on my speculation about um, um, why didn't other banks follow? Because I had written that, well, they have they are so far ahead, been doing this so long, and it is a bit complex, and then might be seem difficult, and so on. And he said, well, all of that is right, but you have forgotten one thing. It's about power. They, these CEOs, they believe that they will lose their power if they take this route. What they haven't understood is that they will actually get more power if you do this. If power is, is about really um, uh, helping an organization to perform uh, better. And uh, I'll never forget that comment because um, I hadn't thought about that. Right. And of course, it's what drives... Yeah. I mean, I think that's another reason we don't see this type of approach in governments either. You know, it's 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 the the leaders are driven often by by personal power and this yeah in the me in the short term diminishes or appears to diminish personal power but over the longer term you're yeah. absolutely right yeah. you become a steward of these organizations that are alive yeah. with human potential you you end yeah. up with a lot yeah. more power right because you're influencing uh, a much stronger yeah. organism mm-hmm. the way i feel yeah. yeah absolutely yeah um yeah now, I want to ask one very prosaic question, perhaps, just before we close out. And that may be for the people listening to this, like, oh, this is all very well. But where I work, you know, I'm, I don't have the ear of the CEO. I don't have the ear of the CFO. I'm not going to eradicate budgets in my working life anytime soon. Like, is there anything somebody can do um, if they're operating within a budget cycle? Um that's a sort of a baby step in this direction or that might ameliorate their experience in dealing with budgets? The answer is yes. Um, 
first of all, I mean, most revolutions actually don't uh, start at the top. Right? And of course, you need um, the CEO and the CFO on board at some point in time. But it is actually possible to start this also further out in the organization. Um, we have one example, uh, Roche, quite big uh, player. Um, they're uh, the daughter company in, in, in Sweden, Roche Sweden. They started out uh, with big success, and that inspired the rest of Roche to, to, to get going. Also, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of stuff written on, on, on beyond budgeting. Um, and uh, share, you don't need to start with, with big books, uh, but uh, there are many articles that you'll find on, 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 on LinkedIn, other places, um, uh, short reads that, that gives people an idea about what this is about. And uh, share these with, um, with colleagues and, and see if you can send, uh, send a few of them upstairs as well. Um, and um, uh, and also check out, uh, I mean, your competitors might be among those uh, uh, that have uh, started out uh, or similar companies. Uh, check, invite, uh, check out what, what they are doing and also check out the Beyond Budgeting Roundtable. It is a network of, of uh, companies that uh, are either on the journey or interested in, in, in this. And we bring these people together so that we can learn from each other. And as soon as this pandemic is over, we will uh, resume our physical meetings uh, where we typically meet in London uh, every six months um, with great speakers and cases and, and people get to meet uh, each, um, each other. Right. And, uh, and again, if your organization is on some kind of agile transformation journey, then um, Remind those uh, heading up this that what, what I just said earlier that you will never succeed unless you uh, um, uh, also address the budgeting uh, process. Uh, I've actually just written an article about this. It's called Agile Transformation and the Elephant in the Room. And um, you'll find it on LinkedIn. So, uh, um, And then my, my final reflection here is that uh, you know everything that we have talked about uh, here. Um, it, it it will happen. You know I'm 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 I don't I don't care what it will be called beyond budgeting or business agility or whatever. That's not important. But it will happen in some form or shape. And I'm convinced that when we in 15, 20 years time look back at what was mainstream management in 2021, we will smile a bit, even have a laugh, just like we today smile about the days before the internet. And how long is that? And as organizations, you can choose to be vanguards, early movers to get the competitive advantage out of this, or you can choose to be dragged into this as one of the laggards. I think that is a pretty simple choice to make. What a beautiful note to end on. Beate, thank you very much. I will give a final plug to the book. Implementing uh, Beyond Budgeting. There we have it. Unlocking uh, the performance potential. Uh, yeah, wonderful book and just full of straightforward stories um, about how this has worked in different organizations. Um, very easy read, inspiring. Uh, very thank simple. You. So, yes, thank you. We'll put the link to that article for all of those who are uh, interested uh, in the crossover between this and uh, Agile Transformation. And, the, and, of course, the Beyond Budgeting uh, organization and the roundtable. 
Well, thank you once again. It's, it's been a pleasure. Continue the great work. Likewise. And uh, yes, uh, see you. See you. Thank you. How Bye. should I be saying goodbye in Norwegian? Come on, let's have a, a Norwegian sign off. Farvel, coming from farewell. Say again, farvel. Farvel, okay. Farvel. Farvel. Fabulous. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com. Dot com.